just how bad is touring for your mental health? There's loads and loads of studies that come out. You sometimes hear the worst of the road and you often see as a fan the best of the road. But as someone that's managed artists for the best part of a decade now and has jumped in the tour bus a few times over the last 20 years, promoted shows when I was 16, 17, 18, moved to London, started promoting shows, worked for a booking agent. Like I've been quite involved in the live industry and I've seen the toil it takes on people. We've obviously seen the awful stories when things go to the worst and the road is a very odd thing. It's it's a lifestyle you spend traveling and it's a life. It's, it's not just something someone does for a week a lot of the time. It's often something someone does 200 shows a year, 300 shows a year with a the days off that's your entire year gone and it's visiting different countries different cultures and customs but barely being there long enough to get a sense of them it may seem like going on holiday from the outside but on the inside it's a touring office with all those politics and all of the stresses and strains of that so i wanted to talk to tamsin embleton who is a therapist she's also part of a collective of therapists in the music industry um, she's done all sorts of events over the years and she's just released a new book and to say that it's got support from the industry would be quite an understatement really there's quotes from Phil Selway from Radiohead and just after I finished this podcast with Tamsin she disappeared off to do some Canadian radio I think it was with Phil Selway there's Nile Rogers singing the praises of the book um, there's interviews in the book with Pixies, Ferromonch, Radiohead, Fortet, Lauren from Churches, Will Young, Peter from Pop Justice, um, who gets mentioned towards the start of this interview. Um, and if you don't know Pop Justice, it is pretty much the best music blog for pop music. And Peter's an incredible journalist that's written for The Guardian and all sorts of places. If you've ever read something that made you laugh about Girls Aloud, it was probably by Peter Robinson. Um, and all of the other amazing stuff that he does so he's he's also moved to become a therapist alongside his journalism now because just like music journalism doesn't pay too well so i won't ramble on too much longer um but just to say that townsend is brilliant the book is brilliant and i think this conversation will hopefully give you a bit more insight to what it's like to be on the road and as you can hear i am still not 100 percent, which is why there's been a little bit of a gap in podcasts um so yes let's get into episode number eight i was actually thinking maybe we should begin by talking about what it's been like to be on tour promoting a book which is not too Mm. dissimilar to be on tour promoting an album and the process of doing promo so i don't know how if there's anything from the book that you found has helped with your resilience of hopping around talking about yourself talking about your book I mean, I'd love to say yes, because that would then promote the book. But um, I mean, yeah, Peter's chapter. So Peter Robinson, Prop Justice, wrote a brilliant chapter on dealing with the media. And that helped in, it was kind of like um, helping me condense a few ideas. One of my problems, I think, is being concise. So this will be interesting. But, um, But yeah, kind of condensing ideas and also trying to keep it fresh. And that's what I'm trying to, in a way, tries to keep in mind. But I mean... I've really enjoyed it um, in a way, 
Although I, th- I think uh, uh, look, I really enjoy meeting people, right? But yeah. my, uh, you know, my training means that I'm very curious about you know you, and I want to talk about how you're experiencing things, and then bounce off it like that. So I'm quite uncomfortable being this side of, um, you know, having this yeah. kind of focus. Like it's, you know, it's a bit like when I jumped from interviewing artists to being the person being interviewed, and yeah. I kept wanting to ask questions, and the journalists got confused because I was like. It's not about them. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, um, and also, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's a great opportunity and bloody blah, but it's also like anxiety provoking, and you you want to get it right, but then you want to reach people and you want to make it interesting. But I'm not saying I'm meant I'm meant to I'm meant to pause and be like a therapist. Say there's no right answer. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't really. You know, I feel like this is a different skill set, and I think that's how many artists feel. They're like. You know, I mean, it's one thing, you know, holding yourself away and writing a book, or it's one thing, you know, being comfortable talking to people about, you know, whatever they're going through. But it's another thing than trying to sell it. Like, that's not my skill set. <laughs> so, yeah. I think it's, a, it's also that thing, like, if it was a simple thing to sum up in a few minutes, you wouldn't have written a whole book about it. And yeah. I think that idea of having to come up with pithy ways of explaining quite complex things like you yeah. want to do the book justice, but you can't. You can do a chapter of the book justice or a page of the book justice, but to try and sum yes. up the whole thing, which is when I sent you that task of what we're going to talk about today, I could see why you wanted to wait. Because <laughs> uh, I've been flicking through the book since you sent it to me. And right. um, I was like, I don't even know which bit to begin with. Like so much of it was resonating right. with me. And um, oh, I was almost like, should we begin with a br- with breath work so that we're both nice and calm for the interview? Uh... Absolutely. And that's something um, one of the therapists at MITC, Jodie Milstein, or Milstein, I never know, um, does often when we're doing workshops and stuff. But I mean, yeah, there has been stuff like that. There's been, I mean, I've got a greater awareness of how I respond to stress, what, you know, my behavior patterns are around that, what I do, uh, you know, how I am with my partner around those times. I know, I know kind of, yeah, I, I know when things are getting a little bit too much and I know what to then do. But one thing that's been really helpful for me um, was hypnosis, actually, hypnotherapy. Oh. So I have my therapist and that's brilliant. And so we're uncovering a lot with that still. And uh, But yeah, that uh, hypnotherapy was something that just puts you in a relaxed state. So usually I listen to a, a, a little sort of 20-minute hypnotherapy, hypnosis, I suppose it is, yeah. Um, and it just reminds me essentially that... Um, yeah, you can't. You kind of can't get it wrong in a way, and you know that you know what you're doing and that sort of thing. It's just someone saying nice. I mean, no, I won't diminish it by saying it's just someone saying nice things to you. It is more than that. You know, you're trying to tap into your unconscious and get yourself into a relaxed state. So, I mean, you can have a ton of people like me saying nice things, but now Rogers and mm-hmm. Phil Sowell from Radiohead and all sorts of uh, people have already said nice things about the book. So, the um... they've been amazing. Like honestly, the support from artists has been phenomenal. It's um. And that's really touching. And like, you know, we're, I'm doing a lot of stuff with Philip Zawei at the moment. Um, we're doing a talk in Belgium and he's later on today, actually, we're um, doing something in Canada um, for a radio show and stuff. And he's just said, look, whatever you need, like, we really want to support this. And, you know, how wonderful wow. to get that. A member of Radiohead is on your, you're in his band, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> close yeah i'll be like yeah. oh, do you need a backing vocalist <laughs> yeah um so th- we should probably bring everyone else into the conversation a bit um and talk about so 
I know you a bit through mutual friends in the industry and you've put on shows, managed artists, tour managed. Um, and I think there's one bit in the introduction where you talk about being on tour with Nick Cave being mm. a bit of an epiphany moment for you of wanting to move from one part of the industry into doing this kind of, which I I don't know if that's the origin story, like a superhero for your book. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. It's definitely part of it. I mean, I guess the origin story is worked a long time in live music. Um, I started off in journalism, tried to anyway, but I wasn't a very good writer. So quite hilarious that I've ended up writing this book. Um, but yeah, started off at the Guardian Observer music magazine, um, which sadly no longer exists and ended I mean, up... weren't very good, but you were writing for the Guardian. I think that's, no, no, that's a I standard. Was, <laughs> I was an intern. I was okay. an intern. I just kept calling and saying like, please let me like, come and open your mail. Um, so did that for a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, bits and bobs um, writing and then... Um, kind of worked my way up in uh, booking, I suppose, a little bit. I wasn't, um, so I was booking mainly like indie shows, essentially gigs and festivals and stuff. Um, and Standing it, Calling, was that one of the ones so, you did? Yeah, yeah, Standing Calling. Yeah, so I was there for a few years. And that was great fun. You know, you get sort of carte blanche. By and large, me and Alex have got slightly similar. There's certainly an overlap in taste anyway. So that was great. Um uh, and yeah, ended up at Mean Fiddler. And anyway, between jobs at one point and a friend of mine, Hiroki, who you probably know, who manages like Crystal Fighters and Anna Calvi and stuff, oh, okay. um, Mount Kimby. So he said, I know you're a massive Nick Cave fan. Would you like to go on tour with Anna and tour manage um, her? And I was managing some artists at the time as well and thought I knew what touring was all about. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I live in venues. I know what this is all about. And um, and then you go out on the road, you're like, oh yeah, no, there's all that other stuff that you haven't thought about. That it's not just about the show or, you know, the dynamics between the band and the camaraderie and the tensions there. And but there's all of this extra stuff about, you know, being taken away from I like to say the people, places and practices that usually keep you feeling stable, like the stuff that keeps you grounded at home. And then the additional cumulative stress that it really starts to, you know, present in wear and tear to your body, you know, overuse of particular muscle groups, sometimes people have vocal issues, as well as, um, you know, sleep deprivation. You have these big highs and lows and the cortisol and adrenaline's kind of and, and the late nights and the driving, my God, the driving. I mean, we were on a European tour in a splitter van. So we were, you know, the long journey's really big. Like, yeah, it's really much big. bigger than you think it is, isn't it? It's like, you so look at it on a map bigger. and it's, you look at a map, it's a scale, not where the ego of the UK makes the UK bigger on maps. And actually yeah, Germany's yeah. huge. But it's huge. It's huge. And the food and the service stations, you know, that we were, we didn't have much money at all. Uh -huh. And at one point, I mean, I kind of feel like I need to probably apologize to Anna at some stage because we just, we'd, we ran out of cash. And so we were basically eating like, you know, packets, multi-packs of um, croissants and mm. pan au chocolat, just like, I oh, will just have that. And, you know, so we were, we weren't nourished. I mean, mm. you know, the lot, the most of the band were vegetarians as well. So we had these challenges with like, how do you get good quality vegetarian food at that point in Germany with mm. like sausage fest, lots of places. Um, Literally. <laughs> well, yes. And uh, yeah, so, well, that's the other, you know, another challenge on the road, isn't it? Is that it's like this macho kind of culture quite often. Anyway, um, she's incredibly powerful um, on stage. She's quite shy off stage, I would say, at times anyway. Um, and, you know, there's loads of interesting stuff we could talk about in terms of 
how people would respond to her and this sort of question she was getting in some interviews that you just sort of eye roll and go, oh my God, how, like, where's this come from? Or the way that, you know, because it's quite sexually powerful as well on stage, how over-familiar people in the audience could be. And, you know, anyway, so... Um, I guess there's, there's one thing I was going to say. The um, Lots of people kind of make touring sound like the greatest thing on earth, but so mm -hmm. many of the days on the road feel like that time when you have to check out of the hotel, but you can't get your train until four o'clock and you've got your luggage and right. you've not really got anywhere to be and you might have not slept and... Like it's a really yeah. weird feeling a lot of the time on the road. And I think that's the bit which um, I think it was a conversation I had with the Kaiser Chiefs at one point is they didn't want to talk about how hard things were. Like, mm. I think it was something like no one wants to hear um, Coldplay moaning about their mortgages. Um, but they were very much like they'd done all the hard work. Don't listen to their music then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that the, that the interesting thing the way people responded to your book, I think is because a lot of these are things people have been told not to talk about for a long time. Yeah. And with the money of touring becoming harder, mm -hmm. the mental kind of drain of it um, or impact of it um, is probably more acute now because if you're going to give up and become a nomad, <laughs> um, like I'm friends with Blood Red Shoes and I don't know how they sometimes do like 200, 300 shows in a year. Mm. Um, they just did like 40 dates across America and on, at one point they got snowed into some small town Wow! and you're just like following them on Instagram stories they're like is there any way we can play a show we're in this tiny town of like population mm. of like 600 and they played in a bowling alley just because they were like well we're here and we've got nothing else to do fair yeah. enough I mean how resourceful as well To and that's something that they could do I mean, I think, look, there's lots in what you said. One is, yeah, there's that, that kind of limbo, that kind of waiting where you feel like you can't really fully engage with something. Some people do, and some people cope with that better than others. But um, that's when people can like drink to pass the time and they kind of, you know, certain behaviors come in. Um, and then maybe there's something as well that you mentioned that we, I call, I don't, this isn't my phrase actually. So we've sort of referenced it in the book about a cultural, culture of silence that on the rows, you know, emotions really spread around the group like wildfire. You're, you're living and working together in close confines and everyone's trying to keep the head above water. And if you've got someone being really sort of miserable, it's going to affect people. And so people really try and cope alone. And of course that then leads to all of these other issues um, again. So really there's something about, we tried to name that in the book. Um, and there's a function for people trying to keep their heads above water, but it pushes some things underground so that they don't get dealt with. Um, yeah, and you know, the schedule intensity, I mean, people have different capacities, different resiliences. So some people might cope with that quite well, but somebody, you put someone else in that situation and you know, a couple of weeks in and they're showing, um, you know, signs of, of serious decline. So there's something about, there's no one size fits all. We need to, um, I mean, I, I would love to see some sort of kind of regulation around, you know, maximum five shows a week, you know, yeah. two shows on, one show off, three on, two off, alternating, something like that. Um, and then that's adjusted according to individual capacities, which... But you know, even, even, even then, like sometimes that day off is traveling 19 miles across, 19 hours across Europe. Well, I would, yeah, I would argue that a, a, a day off is not a travel day and it's uh -huh. not a press day. Press yeah. is work and it's anxiety provoking for some, most people really. It's certainly a stress state. I think it's interesting that um, coach drivers have limits to the number of hours they can do and mm. lorry drivers, but the, indus 
music industry doesn't have anything like that that I'm yeah. aware of. Is that no. is there anything you've come across anywhere globally? Uh, yes, actually, it, um, but not in contemporary music. So I started at one point, I spoke to some people at the MU about their contracts that they have yeah. for in-house um, like orchestral musicians at the West End. And I had a little look at that and they have things, they have a, they have greater rules and they have greater rules around if you're going to do, say, two shows in one day, like you've got a matinee, then it's compensated in this way or there's, you know, there's certain, there's different, um, so there's a bit of guidance there, but the difference is there, um, that the, the contract I saw anyway, and I'm sure there's others, um, was based on an in-house residency where people presumably live locally. So they've got all yeah. their resources there. They can travel in and out, you know, they can build their life around that regularity in, in a way that they're not, you know, taken away from everyone, plus the travel, plus the jet lag, plus, you know, everything else. So there's maybe some slight differences culturally as to, you know, what's around that. Although, um, you know, there's lots of addiction issues in orchestras too, but. And what of your, is one of your hopes in putting together a book like this and what you do with the organization you run, which you've not even touched upon yet, um, which we should, you should probably talk a little bit about, is your hope that people will start to put in some of these things? Like one of the things I've always asked for, and it rarely happens, is just a quiet space somewhere in the venue for the artist. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, sometimes I want just for me as the dry, as the person that's been driving and tour managing and you just want to have 10 minutes to yourself. Um, in in yeah. fact, I had a conversation, I won't say who it was, and it's someone who's who really struggled with their mental health um and they started smoking and they're a singer mm -hmm. in a band mm -hmm. and it was because and like we we had this conversation and it's a really weird thing to start doing in like your early 30s mm -hmm. um and and I, I felt a bit like i didn't know them that well um and they just started saying well i just 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 wanted to get away from everyone mm -hmm. and i can take five right. minutes to myself if i smoke mm -hmm. and, I, and they were just like and I was like, well, why didn't you just take five minutes to go for a walk and listen to a podcast? Or they're like, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> now I'm hooked on smoking. Um, and, and the fact there's like nowhere to sit and be quiet anywhere in a venue. And in a way, you know, again, the, the kind of culture that's created in live, you know, it's, it's easier to say, I'm just going out for a smoke than it is to say, I just need to get away. Like, yeah. just give me a break, you know? But yes, in long the short, there's like, there is a chapter that talks about utilizing space backstage. And absolutely, if you, I mean, my, you know, my fantasy here would be, you would have, first of all, dressing rooms would be really well facilitated with low lighting as well to help with the wind down post show and adequate, you know. Would you recommend they have all those giant penises drawn on the walls? <laughs> No, no. Sure. The amount of horrible <laughs> dressing rooms that are just yeah, like some drunk sixteen-year-old boy's dream of a wall, a wall they want to scroll over. Anyway, that's a side yeah. point. Sorry. Well, exactly. I mean, that's you know that could be um, make some people feel very uncomfortable. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would, you know, ideally you'd have a room that was soundproof, that was this chill-out paradise where people can go in and rest or meditate or something. And maybe you'd also have a room backstage where people could exercise and they could, you know, get out, sort of blow off some steam essentially. And you'd have adequate crew rooms and you'd think about the fact that there's not a lot of natural light backstage and air quality. So you maybe you get some plants and, you know, you can, I mean, I'm describing some slight utopia here, but, you, you know, there are things that can be done. And we are talking to some people about, you know, 
um, improving like backstage at festivals and stuff like that. Um, but it's also about the, you know, the kind of psychological safety on the road. How do we improve how people are communicating with each other? Because really, you know, some of the tension arises because so-and-so over here is really stressed and being ratty. Like I definitely get when I'm very stressed. I did get on the road on that particular tour. I remember after a few weeks Mm. and that then pushes the stress out onto other people and you have that ripple effect, you know, that's how things spread. So it's about that personal understanding. Okay. This is a tendency of mine. I can notice when I'm starting to feel a bit more critical or irritable and I can put these things in place and here's how I can sort of self-soothe really. Um, and, and, you know, not ruling by intimidation. You know, not shouting, and mm. which is, you know, kind of extends outside of the touring sphere in terms of how people communicate in live, um, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I think another factor in that is being on the road, for one, is a bit like being in an office job and you don't, you don't get to choose who you work with a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. If you've mm-hmm. booked someone for a month and they're on the road as a guitar tech, but they're a nightmare as a human being, um, like I'm sure everyone's worked an office job or a building site job or something where they've encountered someone who was just an awful person to work with and have to spend all of your time with. But imagine that from 8 a.m. until 2 a.m. every day for months on end. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is, like you said, until you actually go on the road and do it, if you work in the industry and you've never been on a tour, you have no idea when you're asking someone to do four hours of promo and just say, well, why, why can't you do that? Like, why? And like, in fact, mm. I saw on, I posted something the other day on LinkedIn and someone replied about, um, it was a really interesting thing actually about rating record labels on, because a lot of the times you see artists are judged yes, on their stats and scales mm. and things. And this mm-hmm. PR replied going, yeah, but artists sometimes blow out a whole day of promo. And it's like, that's probably because they shouldn't have had the promo day in in the first place. It was probably also- their one chance to take any time for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to remember that um promo can be threatening in a in in a way. But yeah, you are going of, through the process of putting an album out by putting a book out. So I'm sure it's It's oh, a weird thing. Yeah. But... I mean, I think in, in a way, I, you know, I can relate to you know, I'm a massive Scott Walker fan and um and I remember, I don't know, maybe it's in 30th Century Man or something where he's like, oh yeah, once I, once I make the record, I never think, I never want to return to it. You know, that's from that time. That's from hmm. those days. I'm somewhere else now. I mean, I think a lot of people probably say that. And I feel a little bit like um, like that with the book. I'm like, oh, a bit torn. I kind of, kind of like, I've done my bit. Yeah. I want someone else to do the next <laughs> bit, really. You've had the trauma of the edits and the re-edits and the like structuring <laughs> it and having someone checking it for legal and all those things. Yeah. But the book's gone great. And I saw that Live Nation have bought 3,000 copies to go into venue dressing rooms, and yeah. um, which I think feels like a really sensible place for the book to be to someone to stumble across it. And like some venues do have little libraries. There are not very many of them that have them, but it's all yeah. like sometimes it's like bring a book, leave a book type yeah. of thing. And like, but again, like that's like an unwritten rule of the road, not a like, there's not yeah. like, a blueprint for people to follow. Um, so how did that come about with Live Nation? And like, it's, is that something that, again, like where you hoped people would find the book and where they need it is that place, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the relationship with, well, I wouldn't say relationships may be a little strong in a way, but the connection with Live Nation began almost immediately when I started to crowdfund for the book. So I, 
you know, I done started researching psychological impact of touring 2016, wrote an MA dissertation on it basically. And then from that was like, okay, there's loads of material here. And there's lots of things where I, I need to, I, I really think people need some support, need to um, need some guidance, I suppose. So I thought I'd crowdfund it. I spent a year going to the industry. So look, can you, like, would anyone support this? And everyone said no. Mm. <laughs> I was like, right, okay, brilliant. And that was partly because they'd just supported a book that's quite similar or has um, have some overlap. Um, so then I started crowdfunding it and friends at CMU uh, did a post about it um, or added it into their newsletter. And that was seen by a lovely guy called Ryan Doveton at Live Nation. He sent it to Michael Rapino. Michael Rapino emailed me and I thought it was spam. I was in the French house <laughs> in Soho having a pint on Friday and I was like, oh, who's this? You know, oh, what do you need? Sure, sure. <laughs> and I thought, I just, I didn't really buy it, but we had a really brief email exchange. Basically, he said, look, what? just tell me the figure you need to make this happen. Mm. And so I did. And then he effectively sponsored it. No other editorial input, no completely hands off. And that was, you know, 2019 or something, 2018 maybe. But, um, and then so we started writing it and then and then I tried to get a publisher and I was quite naively thought I'd represent myself and um, didn't understand the sort of splits you get as a writer. Mm. So I was like, oh, we'll just do it 50-50 and managed to get these meetings in with these big publishing um, houses. And they were like, mm, no, I mean, it's more like 8% usually. Anyway, so that didn't So it's like work. a major label deal. <laughs> Yeah, I just didn't understand. Mm. I was like, but why would anyone agree yeah. to these terrible deals? But apparently that's how publishing works. And then managed to find Omnibus Press, who offered me a better deal than that. But they said, look, we uh, we don't know, you know, this, we don't know what would happen with this book. Like, how many people do you think will buy it? And I was like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It could be 20, could be 200, could be more than that. You know, we've got a large industry here, but how, I mean, it's niche, right? So well, there's a, there's a hundred, but there's a hundred thousand tracks released each week, which means there's probably around fifty thousand artists out there that are doing it seriously, ish. Yes, yeah, that's true. And every um, week, so that's probably what a million, million to two million artists that potentially should be buying it. That'd be great. Yeah. Imagine that. Um, I retire early, but um, yeah, I went back to Live Nation and I said, "Look, would you consider committing to a?" A minimum order and they they said yes and so that's what happened and then luckily i'm just very grateful that it did come through because i thought actually once they've seen the book maybe you know it's calling for some changes maybe actually they won't, won't want no. those copies because maybe it challenges things but actually they they weren't like that and Stuart came along uh, who runs live nation in the uk came along to the launch and it's just been enormously supportive and um, I know they're very controversial in lots of oh. ways, um, but they, you know, they do or they have, in my case, really invested in in something. And we wouldn't have got this far without them. They're only controversial because they're a dominant force, and the dominant force is the people that can change things. So yeah. even if oh, they yeah. think, even if this is an offsetting of hmm. guilt or something of just not their practices not being as good as they could be, or not knowing what they should be, and right. actually not having the ability to research it and to like if. Like it's it is those big players that are the ones that are going to make the change because you can go to as many kind of luminaire venues in London, which was always amazing, and yeah. Ebbs and Bridge Trades Club in the Brudenau and Leeds, and um, a couple of the venues in Glasgow have got really lovely kind of everything feels like it's done for the artist. 
Yes. And then you can go to some of the other venues. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> um, exactly. Which, which I'm actually about to do in the next few weeks. So at the time of recording, um, I'm just planning to go on tour with the Anchoress and I'm driving the van Brilliant. and doing um, saving some budget by mucking in a bit more than I normally would do as an artist manager. Um, right. And yeah, so there's lots of like flashbacks to tours I've been on before and um, I haven't done that much touring and I've done a fair bit of like press junkets as a journalist which is sort of similar in a way and mm -hmm. things like I went to a, to review a festival in Canada and got stuck at Heathrow for 20 hours so missed the whole first day of the festival oh gosh and I was only there for two days so I was literally like a <laughs> a three-day trip that lasted about about 22 hours or something well spent I as can... long in the airport and i can imagine artists doing that all the time and how that's just going to grind you down just being stuck and yeah definitely i mean i was reminding me of um there's a, a new festival new conference that's just opened up in pennsylvania and they invited me to speak at it last december and it's um all about live and production but it's fr it's from the production side of it um so it's run by Marty Holm, who I interviewed, is Fleetwood Max tour manager, and Jake Berry works with you too, and various others. And I managed to arrive two hours late for my panel. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to sort of, I don't know, make, there's so many things that can go wrong on tour, right? There's so many yeah. moving parts. You just, you keep having to problem solve. And lots of people enjoy that, you know, um, touring people tend to be highly resourceful, certainly so on the... Um, so in side. terms of the hierarchy of things I should be prioritizing over the next few weeks, hmm. um, what would be some of your takeaways from the book where you think I should? Oh, God. I think nutrition and sleep were two of the big ones I took away from reading through it. Yeah, absolutely. So sleep routines, if you can, um, and think about the sleep environment. So maybe you can. So what I do, I uh, unfortunately need to have like complete darkness and silence in order to sleep, which so I can't sleep. I mean, sometimes I do the sleeper train, but I can't sleep on buses and oh, stuff. Yeah. So that wouldn't work for me. But, you know, maybe ask for blackout blinds if you go to a hotel and think about the temperature. Um, so there's an optimal temperature. Um, I think it's 16 to 18 degrees or something like that. It's in Tom's chapter, sleep chapter. Um, or think about nutrition. And maximize your sleep, you know, really think about the travel and when you want those. So some people um, arrange like early check-ins so they can have a nap. So if they're a DJ, you know, if you think about DJs, they're nocturnal really when they're touring. Um, so they might nap before they go on or, um, you know, late checkouts sometimes as well, really maximize the opportunities for rest. Good quality, you know, eating the rainbow, eating all your food groups, high quality fats and things. And, um, you know, dehydration as well. If you're drinking, even at a low level daily, and you're drinking lots of coffee, so you're yeah. having uppers and downers to try and manage this roller coaster. It's going to take a bit of a toll. So you've got to think about how do you rehydrate. Because, um, in fact, that's one of the things I think until you talk about the introduction to the book is the um, adrenaline and crash from um, after you play a show. And I think I don't think it's yeah. something that people understand outside of the industry and it's like alcohol is sort of there as a suppressant really isn't it because yeah, you don't know where to go with that energy and one of the odd things from a couple, a couple of artists have told me is when they come off tour they've almost got like a Pavlovian response at 11 o'clock at night yeah. for like a few weeks of just like this sudden spike and drop of adrenaline and yes um and I think yeah we talk about the problems of alcohol in the industry and it's sort of 
there because people don't really understand why it is they suddenly are drinking and it's not hitting the sides. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there for a number of reasons. I definitely think that's part of it. And it's an effective um, depressant, suppressant, yeah. Um, And it's also, you know, we're in an industry that is about celebration. And so the audience are coming for a kind of one-off. But for everyone else, it's work. And there's that, because it's attracting unconventional people, people are quite reluctant sometimes to see it as work. Certainly artists who are quite young or maybe... um, it, you know, obviously it depends, it all varies, but excuse me. Um, so kind of having a different attitude and seeing it as work and maybe you celebrate towards the weekend like you might do ordinarily maybe, um, you know, and you kind of think a little bit more about your consumption. But yeah, you're absolutely right about the sort of Pavlovian response as well. We hear that a lot. So there's a bit about that in the post-tour chapter. You've got to repair your relationships. You know, you've had time apart. Sometimes when you have tried to connect, you're in different headspaces, you're in different worlds, thinking about preoccupied with different things. So you've got, you know, your body might, you might get post-tour flu because you've been running on empty and finally the cortisol, you know, all the impact of, of that cumulative stress starts to hit you. Um, and you can go from and, playing the O2 to taking your kids to the supermarket. And yeah, it's like, absolutely. that's like a cultural shock for some people. Yeah. And you're out of practice doing daily chores because everything's been done for you or for, you know, that's obviously dependent on the level of touring you're at and the person you are, uh-huh. the role that you have on the road. But yeah, you and you've got the shock of losing status overnight. You know, some people talk about that. Um yeah, it's a contrast. I think a lot about contrasts of touring, both sort of on and off the road. But, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot about, um, you have these sort of intense connections with people and both because you're going through something intense together. So that really can help bonds to, to really um, strengthen and intense connections with the audience. But then there are these moments of real uh, sort of loneliness, isolation or where you're Sometimes I think it's your brain and your body's trying to, you know, reacclimatize and it almost overshoots and goes the other way. But all your, so, you know, recognizing the vulnerable times for you oh. as an individual. Some people it's post show in the hotel room when they're on their own. Um, often it's post tour. Um, noticing habits and thinking about them, not just, you know, so much on tour is, um, excused so long as you're doing your job well and you're not being a complete arsehole then you know then stuff's overlooked and it's like well is that is that okay Are we actually normalizing some and the thing um, is things like you hear about some people being like diva-ish and making odd demands and like a lot of the times people are just asking for something because they it's sort of the thing they need but they can't just pop to the shop to get it and like, right. I mean, I'm guessing you know the story of the brown M&Ms, which is the like one thing that lots of people oh, seem right. to know and how yeah. it's, do, do you know where it came from? So it was, no. it was Dave Lee Roth. Um, okay. One of their road crew had died because a light had fallen on them because the stage wasn't set up properly. Um, right. So his litmus test when he turned up somewhere, it had if people had done their due diligence, was if there was brown M&Ms there or not. And, right. and I read this in like Fast Company or some like business magazine once. Um, mm. But it, for him, it was it, it was a request on the rider that seems ridiculous. But if people didn't pay attention to that small detail, he got them to take mm. the stage apart and put it back together again mm. to make sure the mm-hmm. job had been done properly. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a really interesting. Is litmus test the right? T- I realised I was just using like scientific terms. Yeah, like I think I know what so. they mean. I remember we did it in school <laughs> no to idea. check if there's acid or aminos or something in in the water. Um, <laughs> and I think right. <laughs> and I think that the um, 
sometimes the odd requests that artists can make. Um, like I worked for a booking agent for a while and the Cooper Temple Clause liked to ask for a local postcard and local delicacy yes. on the rider. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone got really excited because the person that went out mm -hmm. and bought something would come in and go, so what did you think of the biscuits or what did you think of the yeah, yeah. like local cakes that we got you? And like, because they were really proud and they like, they'd never really thought yeah. about it as a thing. Yeah. Um, and I've, I know that I worked in a venue growing up in Weymouth and obviously it's a seaside town. So people would, they, we'd get, we'd give them the option of a rider or they could go out and you could do a buyout, they call it in the industry. And, yeah. um, and people would always want to come and get nice fish and chips. Oh. So, and I would like pretty much point them in the direction of like, there's two really good fish and chip shops and they'd yeah. always come back going, that was amazing. <laughs> and well, so that. I used to, yeah, we used to do the same with the Borderline. I remember getting postcards and getting stamps on them. And it's like, write them out, we'll we'll send them for mm -hmm. you. Um, I remember somebody, who was it? Someone requested one of those hats with the propellers on. Yeah. I was like, I've got to get that. <laughs> That's brilliant. But I mean, you know, I could interpret those two requests that you mentioned and say, yeah. look, that's someone connecting with home and wanting home to whoever they're sending the postcard to, to know where in the world they are. Yeah. It's also grounding them in where they are culturally, because quite often, you know, touring is such a whirlwind. You're like, where the fuck am I? I'm in yeah. like, and who knows? But I'm going to be here for about, you know, 24 hours and then I'm somewhere else again. So actually doing something that connects you to the environment is really uh, important. But to return to the point before that, which was about, um, these seemingly strange demands. What I would also say is, you know, on tour, you as an artist, you have a lot of responsibility, but you have limited control. Uh -huh. And so the things that are are within the sphere of control become extremely important. And some of it may seem like logical, like don't move the pedal boards more than half an inch this way. And you're like, well, okay, because you've got your certain paces that you know to get from here A to B on stage. That makes sense. And then there might be other stuff that might not make sense, but for them it might create a sense of safety and a, a sense of regularity. Oh, yeah. So there is usually, you know, there's an understanding there and, you know, there's sort of, maybe there's some things you can think about in terms of overindulgence as well, but it doesn't also, doesn't always come from the artist. Yeah. You know what? I interviewed Emma Banks and um, from CAA, who's brilliant, um, and she's, she's a booking uh, agent for some huge artists, isn't she? Absolutely, yeah, massive. And um, she was talking to me about one artist she worked with, um, and she said, "You know what? I think there was an influence um, on the artist from the tour manager, who suddenly wanted to separate the artist from her touring, from her band, essentially, because so the artist." Um, was then sort of in first class rather than, you know, there was this separation, like you're special yeah. and you need to do things in a certain way and you need to behave in a certain way. And that was coming less from the artist at that point, maybe it was later on, then it, you know, so there's things like that in terms of how, some, some impressions about how things are done and why artists might respond in the way that they do, which isn't quite as, you know, simple as it seems yeah. maybe from the outside. What would be on your wish list of things for the industry to change rather than fix, I guess? What's like the smaller things and then the much bigger things? Oh, God, I don't know where to start. So I start with some of my suggestions. Yeah. One, one of mine would be that everyone that works in the industry has to go on one tour. 
Yeah, um, that's a great idea. So especially bit... everyone that works in live, like get those booking agents out there, get the promoters out there, get the managers out there as well, so people really get it. So I think even if they only do three shows, I think that whole different sense of when you turn up to a venue, like this is what like it's like for instance Mal at the Trades Club in Hepton Bridge because he's been on tour in My Life Story for years. When you arrive, he calls to check what time you're arriving so he can be there, get the kettle on, help you load in. Um, and it makes such a difference. Um, some venues are really good at when you arrive to say this is where the entrance door is. Like yes. um, this is the person to call if you're early. Like and actually just providing the information. Some like yeah. for people that are autistic, just providing a photo of what the entrance door looks like, what the dressing yeah, room looks like. Idea. Really simple um, things like that. And like the the thing I mentioned earlier, just about trying to find somewhere. It might not even be in the venue. It could be finding a local business or someone else where there's somewhere where an artist can go mm -hmm. just for half an hour, an hour. There's not a dressing room. Um, yeah. And like when artists used to come into Six Music, um, they'd often be come into a live session, they'd have a gap. And the amount of artists would be like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And I was like, well, you go to Handel House and see where Hendrix lived. Um, or you can go mm -hmm. for a walk around Regent's Park. Um, yeah. And they just got really like, oh, okay, I've got, actually got time. I could do that. And um nice. suddenly they they went from i've got time to kill to oh i've got have, how much have i got enough time to do this um, yeah absolutely they're great ideas i would say longer than three days and i would say that i would say two weeks uh -huh. minimum and it has to include europe and the reason i say that is that my experience of being on the road and being invited to conferences and stuff is often that europe it, um european promoters really do look after people in a different way. You get fed better, just as basic standard. As you say, there are people waiting to help you load in. Now, of course, I don't want to slam all British venues. I've worked at some brilliant ones. Uh -huh. I have, you know, my personal favorites as well. But there is there is a slightly different attitude sometimes that this you're not a problem that you're turning up to the venue. <laughs> yep. You know, they want you to be there and they want you to have a good time and, and they want to help, essentially. And they know that you're knackered. Um, so that would be great. I mean, you know, I often think about uh, what, I mean, at the earlier someone can get help, the better. So I would, a lot of what I'm thinking about at the moment is how do we build in more psychoeducation for people? And that can be about skills building, like, you know, vocal warmups and um, how to warm up your body if you're playing certain instruments, but it's also about, you know, people skills, interpersonal skills um, and stuff like that, that I think would be very helpful so that people can advocate for themselves better. They can feel a bit more empowered and they, they um, yeah, I think that would be quite preventative. So, you know, my ideal would be someone starts working with, um, I mean, this is really for artists that are signing, I suppose, but they work with the label and the label has a budget and um, that goes towards psychoed coaching and or therapy, you know, depending on what the need is, but there's that support built in early on that says, look, this is a steep learning curve and some parts of this will be stressful. And then sort of doing something that's quite tailored would be brilliant. That that touches on something in the in the first episode of the podcast. I spoke to Naomi Pohl from Musicians Union, Great. and she was talking about how there's no HR in the industry. Yeah, if you work at a label, you've got a whole different bunch of resource yeah. and and stability than if you're essentially the artist or the manager or the tour yeah. manager or anyone else. There's not the same thing. Like one of the the things that I was aware that was like AA meetings at festivals and things was something which 
I'm kind yeah. of aware happen and, and mm -hmm. are useful for people yep. to have out there. They're super useful. Yeah, I'd agree with what Naomi's saying there. And I think um, one suggestion I've put in the, the chapter about healthy touring is about outsourcing HR because you need the, somebody with those people skills as well. And also teaching people about financial security. You know, on tour, it's feast or famine. Most people sort of, it, well, certainly you hear a lot of stories from crew about blowing their PDs, you know, while they're out on the road and, and you sort of, it's feast or famine. And there's something about predicting, being able to think a few steps ahead and look after the future you as well as just uh -huh. enjoying yourself. So that's, again, it's a psycho ed. Um, I'm, well, I'm really grateful for your time and I'm, I'm aware that we could probably talk for about another two hours. Um, and <laughs> I can make this a five part podcast or a whole podcast in itself, probably. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, Whereabouts, so whereabouts can people find the book and what are some yes. of the other resources online that you'd, you'd recommend people dip into? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so you can find the book at Rough Trade, Waterstones, Amazon globally. Um, you can also find it cheaper on just by Googling it. I keep right. finding sites where it's like 25, 30 quid. So like, do have a look at it. It's an ebook as well for about 16.99 and it will hopefully be an audio book soon and eventually it'll be online courses. Um, and then other resources to have a look at. Um, it depends where in the world you are, really, but I think there's some great stuff coming from Tonic Rider at the moment. Have a look at our website, touringmanual.com. And at the end of the summer, actually, that's maybe ambitious. We're working on a global database of services, which will include, you know, charities where you can get some financial support you know, mental health services, coaching services, health services, essentially, mm. and um, stuff like that. So hopefully there'll be one place you can go and you can say, this is where I am, what's available to me. And remind everyone the name of the book. Oh, yes. Uh, Touring and Mental Health, the Music Industry Manual. I'm sure there was about six other titles. So and, uh, <laughs> can, can, can you um, confirm or deny whether Justin Hawkins is going to do the audio book? Oh, I would love that. Do you know what? That's one of my regrets is that we didn't have more of him in the book. He's so entertaining. And that's a really good idea. <laughs> with, a, with like a four-tet remix version. Amazing. Yeah, done. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah.